Chapter 11 Faith I must talk in this chapter about what the Christians call faith. Roughly speaking, the word faith seems to be used by Christians in two senses or on two levels, and I will take them in turn. In the first sense, it means simply belief, accepting or regarding as true the doctrines of Christianity. That is fairly simple. But what does puzzle people, at least it used to puzzle me, is the fact that Christians regard faith in this sense as a virtue. I used to ask how on earth it can be a virtue. What is there moral or immoral about believing or not believing a set of statements? Obviously, I used to say, a sane man accepts or rejects any statement not because he wants or does not want to, but because the evidence seems to him good or bad. If he were mistaken about the goodness or badness of the evidence, that would not mean he was a bad man, but only that he was not very clever. And if he thought the evidence bad but tried to force himself to believe in spite of it, that would be merely stupid. Well, I think I still take that view. But what I did not see then, and a good many people do not see still, was this. I was assuming that if the human mind once accepts a thing as true, it will automatically go on regarding it as true until some real reason for reconsidering it turns up. In fact, I was assuming that the human mind is completely ruled by reason, but that is not so. For example, my reason is perfectly convinced by good evidence that anesthetics do not smother me and that properly trained surgeons do not start operating until I am unconscious. But that does not alter the fact that when they have me down on the table and clap their horrible mask over my face, a mere childish panic begins inside me. I start thinking I am going to choke, and I am afraid they will start cutting me up before I am properly under. In other words, I lose my faith in anesthetics. It is not reason that is taking away my faith. On the contrary, my faith is based on reason. It is my imagination and emotions. The battle is between faith and reason on one side, and emotion and imagination on the other. When you think of it, you will see lots of instances of this. A man knows, on perfectly good evidence, that a pretty girl of his acquaintance is a liar and cannot keep a secret and ought not to be trusted. But when he finds himself with her, his mind loses its faith in that bit of knowledge, and he starts thinking, perhaps she'll be different this time, and once more makes a fool of himself and tells her something he ought not to have told her. His senses and emotions have destroyed his faith in what he really knows to be true. Or take a boy learning to swim. His reason knows perfectly well that an unsupported human body will not necessarily sink in water. He has seen dozens of people float and swim. But the whole question is whether he will be able to go on believing this when the instructor takes away his hand and leaves him unsupported in the water, or whether he will suddenly cease to believe it and get in a fright and go down. Now, just the same thing happens about Christianity. I am not asking anyone to accept Christianity if his best reasoning tells him that the weight of the evidence is against it. That is not the point at which faith comes in. But supposing a man's reason once decides that the weight of the evidence is for it. I can tell that man what is going to happen to him in the next few weeks. There will come a moment when there is bad news, or he is in trouble, or is living among a lot of other people who do not believe it, and all at once his emotions will rise up and carry out a sort of blitz on his belief. Or else there will come a moment when he wants a woman, or wants to tell a lie, or feels very pleased with himself, or sees a chance of making a little money in some way that is not perfectly fair. Some moment, in fact, at which it would be very convenient if Christianity were not true. And once again his wishes and desires will carry out a blitz. I am not talking of moments at which any real new reasons against Christianity turn up. Those have to be faced, and that is a different matter. I am talking about moments where a mere mood rises up against it. Now faith, in the sense in which I am here using the word, is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted, in spite of your changing moods. For moods will change, whatever view your reason takes. I know that by experience. Now that I am a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. 
but when I was an atheist I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. This rebellion of your moods against your real self is going to come anyway. That is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where they get off, you can never be either a sound Christian or even a sound atheist, but just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion. Consequently, one must train the habit of faith. The first step is to recognize the fact that your moods change. The next is to make sure that, if you have once accepted Christianity, then some of its main doctrines shall be deliberately held before your mind for some time every day. That is why daily prayers and religious reading and church-going are necessary parts of the Christian life. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. And as a matter of fact, if you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? Now I must turn to faith in the second or higher sense, and this is the most difficult thing I have tackled yet. I want to approach it by going back to the subject of humility. You may remember I said that the first step towards humility was to realize that one is proud. I want to add now that the next step is to make some serious attempt to practice the Christian virtues. A week is not enough. Things often go swimmingly for the first week. Try six weeks. By that time, having, as far as one can see, fallen back completely or even fallen lower than the point one began from, one will have discovered some truths about oneself. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist. Very well then. The main thing we learn from a serious attempt to practice the Christian virtues is that we fail. If there was any idea that God had set us a sort of exam, and that we might get good marks by deserving them, that has to be wiped out. If there was any idea of a sort of bargain, any idea that we could perform our side of the contract and thus put God in our debts so that it was up to Him, in mere justice, to perform His side, that has to be wiped out. I think everyone who has some vague belief in God, until he becomes a Christian, has the idea of an exam, or of a bargain in his mind. The first result of real Christianity is to blow that idea into bits. When they find it blown into bits, some people think that this means Christianity is a failure and give up. They seem to imagine that God is very simple-minded. In fact, of course, he knows all about this. One of the very things Christianity was designed to do was to blow this idea to bits. God has been waiting for the moment at which you discover that there is no question of earning a pass mark in this exam or putting him in your debt. Then comes another discovery. Every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment, is given you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to His service, you could not give Him anything that was not in a sense His own already. So that when we talk of a man doing anything for God or giving anything to God, I will tell you what it is really like. It is like a small child going to its father and saying, Daddy, give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present. Of course, the father does, and he is pleased with the child's present. It is all very nice and proper, but only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence to the good on the transaction. When a man has made these two discoveries, God can really get to work. It is after this that real life begins. The man is awake now. We can now go on to talk of faith in the second sense. Chapter 12 Faith Continued 
I want to start by saying something that I would like everyone to notice carefully. It is this. If this chapter means nothing to you, if it seems to be trying to answer questions you never asked, drop it at once. Do not bother about it at all. There are certain things in Christianity that can be understood from the outside before you have become a Christian. But there are a great many things that cannot be understood until after you have gone a certain distance along the Christian road. These things are purely practical, though they do not look as if they were. They are directions for dealing with particular crossroads and obstacles on the journey, and they do not make sense until a man has reached those places. Whenever you find any statement in Christian writings which you can make nothing of, do not worry. Leave it alone. There will come a day, perhaps years later, when you suddenly see what it meant. If one could understand it now, it would only do one harm. Of course, all this tells against me as much as anyone else. The thing I am going to try to explain in this chapter may be ahead of me. I may be thinking I have got there when I have not. I can only ask instructed Christians to watch very carefully and tell me when I go wrong, and others to take what I say with a grain of salt, as something offered because it may be a help, not because I am certain that I am right. I am trying to talk about faith in the second sense, the higher sense. I said last time that the question of faith in this sense arises after a man has tried his level best to practice the Christian virtues and found that he fails, and seen that even if he could, he would only be giving back to God what was already God's own. In other words, he discovers his bankruptcy. Now, once again, what God cares about is not exactly our actions. What he cares about is that we should be creatures of a certain kind or quality, the kind of creatures he intended us to be, creatures related to himself in a certain way. I do not add, and related to one another in a certain way, because that is included. If you are right with him, you will inevitably be right with all your fellow creatures, just as if all the spokes of a wheel are fitted rightly into the hub and the rim, they are bound to be in the right positions to one another. And as long as a man is thinking of God as an examiner who has set him a sort of paper to do, or the opposite party in a sort of bargain, as long as he is thinking of claims and counterclaims between himself and God, he is not yet in the right relation to him. He is misunderstanding what he is and what God is, and he cannot get into the right relation until he has discovered the fact of our bankruptcy. When I say discovered, I mean really discovered, not simply said at parrot fashion. Of course, any child, if given a certain kind of religious education, will soon learn to say that we have nothing to offer God that is not already his own and that we find ourselves failing to offer even that without keeping something back. But I am talking of really discovering this, really finding out by experience that it is true. Now we cannot in that sense discover our failure to keep God's law except by trying our very hardest and then failing. Unless we really try, whatever we say, there will always be at the back of our minds the idea that if we try harder next time, we shall succeed in being completely good. Thus, in one sense, the road back to God is a road of moral effort, of trying harder and harder. But in another sense, it is not trying that is ever going to bring us home. All this trying leads up to the vital moment at which you turn to God and say, You must do this. I can't. Do not, I implore you, start asking yourselves, Have I reached that moment? Do not sit down and start watching your own mind to see if it is coming along. That puts a man quite on the wrong track. When the most important things in our life happen, we quite often do not know at the moment what is going on. A man does not always say to himself, Hello, I'm growing up. It is often only when he looks back that he realizes what has happened, and he recognizes it as what people call growing up. You can see it even in simple matters. A man who starts anxiously watching to see whether he is going to sleep is very likely to remain wide awake. As well, the thing I am talking of now may not happen to everyone in a sudden flash, as it did to St. Paul or to Bunyan. It may be so gradual that no one could ever point to a particular hour or even a particular year. And what matters is the nature of the change in itself, not how we feel while it is happening. It is the change from being confident about our own efforts to the state in which we despair of doing anything for ourselves and leave it to God. I know the words, leave it to God, can be misunderstood, but they must stay for the moment. The sense in which a Christian leaves it to God is that he puts all his trust in Christ, trust that Christ will somehow share with him the perfect human obedience which he carried out from his birth to his crucifixion, 
that Christ will make the man more like himself and, in a sense, make good his deficiencies. In Christian language, he will share his sonship with us, will make us, like himself, sons of God. In Book 4, I shall attempt to analyze the meaning of those words a little further. If you like to put it that way, Christ offers us something for nothing. He even offers everything for nothing. In a sense, the whole Christian life consists in accepting that very remarkable offer. But the difficulty is to reach the point of recognizing that all we have done and can do is nothing. What we should have liked would be for God to count our good points and ignore our bad ones. Again, in a sense, you may say that no temptation is ever overcome until we stop trying to overcome it, throw up the sponge. But then, you could not stop trying in the right way and for the right reason until you had tried your very hardest. And, in yet another sense, handing everything over to Christ does not, of course, mean that you stop trying. To trust Him means, of course, trying to do all that He says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take His advice. Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to Him, it must follow that you are trying to obey Him, but trying in a new way, a less worried way, not doing these things in order to be saved, but because He has begun to save you already not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside you. Christians have often disputed as to whether what leads the Christian home is good actions or faith in Christ. I have no right really to speak on such a difficult question, but it does seem to me like asking which blade in a pair of scissors is most necessary. A serious moral effort is the only thing that will bring you to the point where you throw up the sponge. Faith in Christ is the only thing to save you from despair at that point and out of that faith in Him, good actions must inevitably come. There are two parodies of the truth which different sets of Christians have, in the past, been accused by other Christians of believing. Perhaps they may make the truth clearer. One set were accused of saying, Good actions are all that matters. The best good action is charity. The best kind of charity is giving money. The best thing to give money to is the church. So hand us over ten thousand pounds and we will see you through. The answer to that nonsense, of course, would be that good actions done for that motive, done with the idea that heaven can be bought, would not be good actions at all, but only commercial speculations. The other set were accused of saying, Faith is all that matters. Consequently, if you have faith, it doesn't matter what you do. Sin away, my lad, and have a good time, and Christ will see that it makes no difference in the end. The answer to that nonsense is that, if what you call your faith in Christ does not involve taking the slightest notice of what he says, then it is not faith at all. Not faith or trust in him, but only intellectual acceptance of some theory about him. The Bible really seems to clinch the matter when it puts the two things together into one amazing sentence. The first half is, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, which looks as if everything depended on us and our good actions. But the second half goes on, for it is God who worketh in you, which looks as if God did everything and we nothing. I am afraid that is the sort of thing we come up against in Christianity. I am puzzled, but I am not surprised. You see, we are now trying to understand and to separate into watertight compartments what exactly God does and what man does when God and man are working together. And, of course, we begin by thinking it is like two men working together so that you could say, he did this bit and I did that. But this way of thinking breaks down. God is not like that. He is inside you as well as outside. Even if we could understand who did what, I do not think human language could properly express it. In the attempt to express it, different churches say different things. But you will find that even those who insist most strongly on the importance of good actions tell you you need faith. And even those who insist most strongly on faith tell you to do good actions. At any rate, that is as far as I go. I think all Christians would agree with me if I said that, though Christianity seems at first to be all about morality, all about duties and rules and guilt and virtue, yet it leads you on, out of all of that, into something beyond. One has a glimpse of a country where they do not talk of those things, except perhaps as a joke. Everyone there is filled with what we should call goodness, as a mirror is filled with light, but they do not call it goodness. They do not call it anything. They are not thinking of it. They are too busy looking at the source from which it comes. 
but this is near the stage where the road passes over the rim of our world. No one's eyes can see very far beyond that. Lots of people's eyes can see further than mine. <laughs>